Open your Bible, if you would, please, to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Uh, we live in a day and age where we like to tell all of the trivial information about ourselves on social media, and so we will mark you know, what our favorite movie is, what our food is, and for really committed Jesus followers on social media, we will always say, and this is my favorite Bible verse. Favorite Bible verses are things that are important to Jesus followers. In fact, after you get to a certain age, uh, I have noted that people will create a file uh, that is prepared for the family when we die, and in there are all the things that we liked to, we'd like to have sung at our funeral and our favorite Bible verse. Now, the title of today's message is Jesus' Favorite Scripture. And I have to tell you right off the bat that that's not entirely accurate about Deuteronomy 6. In fact, we don't know really what Jesus' favorite Scripture was because he was never asked what his favorite Scripture was. However, he was asked at least on two occasions from what we can tell in God's Word what he believed to be the most important scripture. And the first scripture he listed in both answers is Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is then, for Jesus, the most important scripture in the Old Testament, which for the New Testament church at the time of Christ was the only Bible that existed. So a pretty important passage. Why don't you stand, please, as we honor the reading of God's Word this morning and look at Deuteronomy chapter 6. Beginning in verse 4, known to the Hebrews as the Shema, which is based on the pronunciation of the first word uh, here in English, Shema in Hebrew. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes and you shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated turns out that this passage of Scripture wasn't the only, the most important Scripture in Jesus' estimation. It was the most important Scripture in the entire Jewish religion's estimation. In fact, in the, the, manu, the, the, the Hebrew text that is used and has been used for the last thousand years to provide for us our other English translations of the Old Testament, when you come to the Shema, you can note, even if you don't know Hebrew, that there's something significant about this passage. Because the first word and the last word of the text that I just read to you are written in larger text than the surrounding text. So it stands off to call the eye to this being a very important passage of Scripture. So we're going to find out today why it's an important passage of Scripture. We're going to take it apart, look at it at first, and then at the end we're going to ask two important questions about it that can help us walk out of here knowing what to do with the Shema, Deuteronomy chapter. Six. So look again at verse 4. It begins with, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, 
Now, it's important for us to understand how that word hear would have been processed by the Jewish people. They would have clearly heard the word hear. They would have, they would have understood that what they are being called to is to listen to something, but they would also have understood that they were being called to do more than just listen to something. What they would have actually understood that God was calling them to do through Moses was to obey what God is about to say. For them, hearing equaled obeying. And that makes sense to us because you can say, I've heard what God said and not obey what God says. And it would mean then that you really never heard what God said at all. So they would have processed the the call at the beginning of this passage of scripture as a call to obey. And that call to obey is going to be based on two truths. One truth relating to the character of their commitment and one truth related to the character of God. The truth upon which their obedience, their hearing is to be based first is uh, the, the character of their commitment. They had a personal commitment. They had made of themselves a personal commitment to this God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the God that we claim as our own. From the time that, that God had called Abraham out of the, the wilderness, out of the desert, and said to him, I want you to go and I want you to follow me to a place that I will show you and I will make you a great nation. Those people that, that came from Abraham, uh, the people of Israel, had always, from God's perspective, been his people. He had created them, he had called them, he had set them apart. Israel had always been God's people. But in a very real sense, it was not until they get to Mount Sinai and the Ten Commandments are given by Moses that the people claimed God as their God. As a matter of fact, when the people are told to to get ready for God's coming to Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19, the language that is used is very much like the language of betrothal, the language language of, of a wedding. They are being called to a commitment, to make a commitment of themselves to this God. And so they are being called to obey what God says on the basis of this commitment that they say that they have made to God. So the first truth upon which their obedience is based is their commitment. You say that you uh, have made a commitment to me, obey me. The second basis for their commitment was the character of God himself. God, through Moses, says God is one. Now, we could spend the rest of our day here unpacking what it means to say that God is one. But to put it at at first kind of a trite-sounding level to get us down the road, it means simply this. It means that God is saying, obey me because I am the one and only God. Now again, that's kind of a trite way of looking at it. To probe a little bit deeper, he is saying that I am a God who is complete in himself. There is nothing lacking in me. I am completely self-fulfilling. I am a God who is the only God, who is completely God, who is fully God, and that would have given them great confidence as they were about to go into a land where there were many deities that claimed to be God, God is saying, you need to obey me because I am the one and only God. I am God alone. So obey me on the basis 
of your commitment that you have made to me and on the basis of my nature as the one true God. So how is this obedience to manifest itself? Look at verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today, this is Moses' basically last sermon, and the words that come after chapter 6 are those words that will be commanded. These words that I command you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. Now folks, this, this sermon is given to simple people. They don't have to have theological degrees to understand what God is saying. And they would have understood very clearly that to hear God, to really obey God then, means that I am to love God. Obedience to God equals love for God. And what, what makes that difficult for us as moderns to get our heads around is that we have so trivialized, obviously, the, the concept of love. We use the word love for literally everything. I mean, I love barbecue. And what's not to love about barbecue? But we say, I, I love barbecue, or, or I love uh, the sunshine, or I love the royals, even when they're terrible. I mean, we, we use the word love in very trivial kinds of ways, almost in purely emotional kinds of ways. When we, when we say, I love barbecue, or I love sunshine, or I love the royals, we're speaking of an emotional response we have to those things. Now, emotion is part of love. When Julie and I walked down the aisle almost 30 years ago to say I do to one another, there was the experience of the emotion of love. We were like every other about-to-be-married and newlywed couple. We were sick. We were lousy with the emotion of love. No one wanted to be around us. We were gross. All of those kinds of things. But when I stood there in front of Mark Hartman at Henderson Hills Baptist Church, Edmond, Oklahoma, on March... Or on March... Uh, geez, don't tell Julie. Let's not upload this one. On January the 6th, 1990, something was being called for from me that was more than an emotion. The pastor understood I got the emotion. What was being called for for me was the commitment. And therefore, I have learned over the last 30 years that love is much more than an emotion. It is an obligation. I have an obligation to Julie on the basis of my love for her. Now, that's not going to sell very many Valentine's cards by Hallmark at all, the idea of obligation. But obligation ultimately is what keeps a marriage alive and thriving for decades, an obligation. And so what God is calling for here is not some emotion, not to get swept away in a worship experience and to raise our hands and to get goose flesh because of something that we heard. What he is saying here is, in light of this commitment that you have for me, there is an obligation on your part, and the obligation on your part is to love me. And then he goes on to say that this love will manifest itself in obeying the commands that I'm going to give you today. If you, if you love me, you have an obligation to keep the words that I'm about to say. You have an obligation to live as I direct you, live as I command you. You have an obligation to not let this commitment die with your generation, but to 
perpetuate the, 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 the notion of what God calls for and what love of God really means from generation to generation to generation. And, and what preachers tend to do, because we have to fill out our time on Sunday morning when we get to this particular part of the Shema, is begin to, to spend time saying, well, here's what to love God with heart means. And here's what to love God with soul means. And here's what to love God with strength means. And frankly, I think doing so does violence to the text. Because ultimately, what God is saying is very simple. With everything you have, you are to love me. You are to throw yourself fully into this relationship with me. You owe me everything, so give me everything. You were slaves, and I called you out of Egypt. And I've sustained you these 40 years in the wilderness. You owe me everything. I'm calling from you. That kind of radical commitment, that obligation to me. Then he says this in verse 8. You shall bind them, these words that I'm about to command you today, the rest of Deuteronomy. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. And you shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. And here's what the people of Israel did. They said, well, I guess to really love God with everything I am, I need to change my wardrobe a little bit and buy some paint. Because, because what the people of Israel did is they began to apply this super literally. And they began to create these, these it trivializes them, but uh, fashion accessories with that that hung down between their eyes that would contain um, bits and pieces, favorite passages of the law. They began to, to wear these boxes around their wrist that would contain tiny little scrolls which had for what you and I would know as the Ten Commandments. And, and they began to actually paint um, the, the Ten Commandments on, on their doorpost and they would say to everybody, see, we're, we're being obedient to the Shema. And then Jesus shows up and talks to the leaders of this group and says, on the outside, you look great. But on the inside, you're a long, long way from me. You, you do the easy things, but you neglect the weightier matters of the law. We do the same kinds of things in our effort to love God. We pick those things as reflections of love for God that are easy for us, that fit in with our church culture, that cause us to stand out as committed, and then we just hope nobody looks under the hood too deeply. There's a great book called The Life You've Always Wanted by John Ortberg. It came out over 20 years ago. He has a chapter in that book called Boundary Marker Spirituality. And what he says in that book is that most of the rabbinic writing of the first century focused on two aspects of Judaism, circumcision and Sabbath-keeping. And he says that had you gone to any self-respecting rabbi in the first century and said to them, what's the most important commandment, they would have answered just like Jesus did. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So then why was there all of this writing in the first century about circumcision and Sabbath keeping. 
Well, because they were superficial things that could be used to point to our supposed commitment and that would allow us to feel good about ourselves while ignoring the fact that our lives are really not being transformed as God called them to be transformed. Circumcision was a parent's responsibility. And Sabbath keeping, that's just one day a week. And those are observable, measurable things that I can point to and say, hey, I'm doing great. What, what God is calling the people of, of Israel to do here is not go to Home Depot and Kohl's. What God is calling the people of Israel here to do is to have a commitment to him that was visible to everyone they encountered, that was obvious, that was overwhelmingly obvious to every person they encountered. So if you want to love me, you love me with such ferocity of life that everybody who comes in contact with you knows to whom you are committed. That's what the Shema called for from the people of Israel. And this is why Jesus always pointed to this passage of Scripture first. That, that when you want to really sum up what is called for from the life of someone who's following God, it is this wholehearted, full-bodied, life-altering, habit-altering commitment to God that shows up in every single thing you do. All right, so that's what the Shema is. So now let's, let's spend some time in closing asking ourselves a couple of questions that will help us do something with this from now on. First question is this. Let's ask ourselves, what is the day-to-day important of this scripture? What is the day-to-day importance of this scripture? And simply it's this. It reminds us that following Jesus is not what we've made it in the suburbs. That following Jesus is a life-altering, full-bodied, fierce commitment to love God with our lives, with our actions, with every single bit that we are. That's what it is. We, we here in the suburbs have convinced ourselves that, that what God wants for us, and as a sign of our commitment to him, is that we make sure that we put ourselves under biblical teaching once a week. And that our families, if they're still at home with us, have quality biblical programming once a week. And that we together as a family are in a, a church building once a week. And then we go off and we live our lives with, with no connection to anything that we professed or that we claim to learn and, and say is important to us on a Sunday morning. Jesus, by pointing to this passage of Scripture, every single time he was asked, reminds us that a commitment to God is, is about everything that we are and nothing less, nothing less than that. Everything that we are. But let's now ask, what is the big picture importance of this scripture? In other words, in this series of messages called Bible 101, where we have created an admittedly very subjective list of those passages of scripture that are most important for a Jesus follower to be familiar with, why is this particular passage of scripture so important? There are two reasons. Number one, it reminds us that there is not a Bible the lesser and Bible the greater. It reminds us that this is not two different Bibles, 
this is one Bible. That all of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, is Christian Scripture. And you say, well, I don't need to be reminded of that. Let me ask you. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. How much of your devotional reading is from the Old Testament? Most of us are shamefully neglectful of the Old Testament. And if I were to push you very hard on why you don't read the Old Testament more, you would eventually come up with an answer that says, well, it's, it's not about Jesus. I used to have a lady in my first church in rural Tennessee. She would always come to me anytime I preached from the Old Testament and says, Preacher, I like it when you preach from the New Bible. That's what she used to say all the time. Like when you preach from the New Bible. Because she thought that was more important because that's about Jesus. All of Scripture is testimony to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ himself said so at his resurrection when he talked to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. All of Scripture is Christian Scripture. And by Jesus our Savior pointing to this passage of Scripture saying it is the most important commandment, we need to be paying attention to it. It reminds us that the Old Testament is for us too. The difference is, is that we know that Jesus fills in the blanks and provides the period at the end of the sentence, which then leads me to my second reason that this is so important in the big picture. It reminds us that, that the Shema, listen to me, is not enough. It's not enough. You say, why do you say that? Let's leave Deuteronomy and let's go to one of those times when Jesus was asked what's the most important command. Find, if you would please, Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, a scribe, a Jewish leader, comes to Jesus and says to Jesus, what's the most important commandment? He answers like he always does, lists the Shema first, Deuteronomy chapter 6, 4 through 9. And then he lists a passage of scripture from the uh, book of Leviticus, which the Jews had come to see as kind of a companion piece, um, loving our neighbor as ourselves. And then when Jesus answered, the scribe, says these words beginning in verse 32. And the scribe said to him, you're right. I bet you Jesus really, you're, thanks. Um, But he says, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides them. And he's, he's beginning to get a little more depth to his answer. You have truly said that God is one and there's no one beside him. And to love him with all the heart, with all understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. This is is a great response from this, this Jewish leader who has come to understand, you know what, you can give all the sacrifices you want and you can say all the prayers of, of, of David, as Psalms of David in, in worship that you want, but if you do not have this full body commitment to God and if you are not loving others, then everything else is worthless. So it's more than just right answer. He's tracking with what Jesus is saying. And then I want you to see verse 34. Jesus saw that he answered wisely. That's good. That's good. And then he says to him, you're not far from the kingdom. Track with it again, all right? Let's track with it. What's the most important command? Jesus answers. The man says, that's right. I'm tracking with you. So, so. If left right there, the, the, the entire exchange for those listening on would be, well, this, guy, this guy's one of God's people. 
this guy's one of God's people. And Jesus says, you're almost there. I mean, you, 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 you have exactly right what the Jewish religion is ultimately calling for from you. And you're almost where you need to be. You're not far from the kingdom. You say, well, what was missing? Jesus. Jesus was what was missing. In fact, when Jesus says here, you're not far from the kingdom, he, he was saying, you're mere feet from the kingdom. Because I am the one who inaugurates it. And I am the one who brings it in. And I am the one who takes the shortcomings that you will have in life of loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And loving your neighbor as yourself. The times that you fail of that. I will take all of those shortcomings, those things that are called sins, and I will take away the stench and the offense of those sins by taking the stench and the offense of those sins on myself and dying as your substitute on the cross. And I, by my righteousness, will make you righteous and put you in right standing with God. You see, you can do everything that the Shema asks for. You can have this emotional commitment to God. You can have more than an emotional commitment to God. You can have a desire when you wake up in the morning to do what God wants you to do, an obligation towards Him. You can love God. You can be incredibly familiar with the word of God, have knowledge of scripture, and still not be in the kingdom. Because there comes a point when you recognize that I can't complete the journey on my own, and I am going to need grace. Now, the great thing about this story is that we don't know what happened after this exchange. The reason I think it's great is because when... A young man came to Jesus once and says, what do I have to do to be saved? Jesus told him, and the young man, it says, went away sorrowful because he was unwilling to do what was being called for. Here the question hangs in the air, and I think that the author of Mark was inspired to leave it hanging in the air so that 2,000 years later when people come to this passage of Scripture, we are left to question do I have a real, authentic love for God, a desire to be obedient, an in-depth knowledge of Scripture? And yet, still have not knelt in humility and understood, I'll never have ultimately what it takes, and I need grace from Jesus Christ. That's the question left hanging in the air today for all of us. Are we still a little way from the kingdom because we refuse to give ourselves ultimately to Jesus? Let's go to the Lord in prayer, please.